Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. This episode of Drum Tower is supported by IDA Ireland. With the highest share of STEM graduates per capita in the EU, IDA Ireland can help source the skills you need to internationalize and thrive. Visit idaireland.com to learn more. The Economist. Okay, David, this is for you. Just yeah, smell, just smell. It. Yeah, no, no, don't I, drink I, I it. Not dream of <laughs> drinking. So, Alice, I am extremely happy to see you and extremely happy to be in this very cool uh, old school mm-hmm. tea house that's kind of pre hipster hipster, <laughs> I think. Is that the technical term? But okay. Wow. Cheers. Mm. Tasty. <laughs> it's very like. Um, how do you say like tea sang? It's like very delicate. Light, very, yeah, yeah, very light. light. Yeah, yeah. The outside world writes so much about the war clouds, mm-hmm. you know, hanging mm-hmm. over Taiwan. But when you get to this bit of Taipei, near the university district. It's basically the, the, the hipster cafes of yeah. Taiwan. It's, the, it's people like, walking their kind of dogs. Yeah, cafes filled with cats and pour over coffees and no hint that this is a place that might be invaded at some point. Um, no, no real hint of that uh, on the streets, but there is a lot going on beneath the surface. Since Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine, Many in the West have been asking, is Taiwan next? China is offering Taiwan a terrifying choice. Unify with the mainland, which would mean Taiwanese people would lose their freedoms, or face war. Taiwanese people want neither of those options. Their president, Tsai Ing-wen, has said that Taiwan needs to unite and prepare strong defenses to deter China. But Taiwan is still a divided society. People here haven't yet reached a consensus on who they are, whether they are a country, or even what that country is called, let alone whether or how to fight with China. In this four-part series, we'll be looking at how Taiwan, the only Chinese-speaking democracy in the world, can preserve its freedoms and decide its future. And in this first episode, we're asking, is Taiwan Chinese or not? And why is that question so controversial? I'm Alice Su, The Economist Senior China Correspondent, and I'm here with my co-host, David Rennie, The Economist's Beijing Bureau Chief. He was recently here with me in Taipei. This is Drumta. From The Economist. The 
David, hello. You're back in Beijing now, but I'm so glad that you came to Taiwan and we got to do a little bit of reporting together. And David, I know you've been to Taiwan many times before, but I was curious. You know, this is your first time coming here since COVID, and as someone who has been in Beijing the last few years, what impressions did you have? It sounds kind of weird to say that you can tell you're in a democracy, but you can, right? People have conversations <laughs> about politics that just somehow go very differently,、yeah. and are just so much more open. Than they are here on the mainland. Yeah, it's like you feel the absence of those invisible walls in your conversation. Yeah, people aren't policing themselves in that same way. But Alice, you grew up partly in Taiwan. Now you're living and working in Taipei. You've been on both sides of the straits, mainland China and Taiwan. How do the differences between those two sides strike you, and and have they changed? Yeah. So I mean, I moved back to Taiwan early last year from Beijing, and. You know, over the years, Taiwan has become more and more united in this idea of being Taiwanese, at least according to the polls, being Taiwanese rather than Chinese. But when I came here, I was surprised to find that there are still a lot of divisions in Taiwanese society and in Taiwanese national level politics. The big central divide is always over the question of China: Are we a part of China? How to relate to China? Is China a motherland to be embraced, or is China, you know, an aggressor that is threatening Taiwan with invasion? And I was surprised to find that social divisions over those questions were very, very heated, and have only become more so after the war on Ukraine, and also as Taiwanese presidential elections approach. And I guess from my perch at a distance in Beijing, it's remarkable how ambiguous Taiwan's status is. Are you sitting in a different country from me here in Beijing? I should say that you're in a province of China. <laughs>、yeah. You know, even banal but revealing things like when I flew to Taipei to do these interviews with you. Officially, the government here in Beijing would say that that was a domestic flight, right? But I can't help but notice that I catch it from the international side、mm. of Beijing Airport. So, for a domestic flight that links two parts of the same country, it does look an awful lot like you're flying abroad. Within Taiwan, it gets even more complicated because Taiwan actually has two names: Taiwan and Zhonghua Minguo, Republic of China. And there's a big dispute over which name is the appropriate name to use. And that is linked to the story of Taiwanese identity and how complicated it is. And of course, that ambiguity, that strangeness of international flights or domestic flights, that has been what's kept the status quo in Taiwan safe. But now both sides of the strait are becoming less ambiguous. But in order to get into that, I wanted to introduce you to someone named Chen Yaochang. Before I went to elementary school,、yeah. I didn't know there is a language called Mandarin.、Oh, really? I, I, I speak Taiwanese directly only、yeah. at home. Yes. So that was Chen Yaochang. I went to meet him in this office in Central Taipei. That it's not his office; actually, he borrowed it from a friend.、It、has these big windows overlooking the skyline. You see these high rises and mountains all around them. My ancestors, and my ancestors came to Taiwan. Well, at that time, we call Hormosa, in year of the 1661,、uh, with Koshinga. Well, the name we call Zhengzhengong now in Taiwan, and so, so they came from、yes. southern China. In 1661. Yes, yes. He was wearing a suit with a red vest inside that had all these colorful Aboriginal designs. He was really excited. He had brought a bunch of books that he'd written. Homosa was occupied by Dutch at that time. So my first book, my first book, I mean fiction, is where I put the name of a tale of three tribes in Dutch Homosa. So why did you ask to see him? 
So Chen, he's originally a doctor. He's a hematologist. He specializes in blood and bone marrow. But recently, he's become very famous as a writer. He writes historical novels about the history of Taiwan before the Republic of China. So they're set in the 1800s, this time when there were Europeans coming into Taiwan and they were fighting with Aboriginal people. And there were also Southern Chinese migrants. And these novels are so popular, they've been made into television shows. Wow. So from doctor to cultural celebrity. Yeah, that's right. And Chen Yao-chang, he is in his early 70s. So he has really lived through all these huge changes in Taiwan in terms of its political system and in terms of its identity. And the story of his life reflects the ways that Taiwan has been changing. So did his family arrive on the island in 1949 with the KMT from the mainland? So Chen is an islander, which means that his family has been here in Taiwan for hundreds of years. And he has part Aboriginal ancestry, so they've been here maybe thousands of years. But his ethnic Chinese ancestors, they did come from mainland China, but long, long ago. So when I first went to Taiwan, Alice, back in the 90s, there was a really big difference between Taiwanese whose families had come over essentially as the losers of the Chinese Civil War in 1949. And when the communists took over the whole of China, the last place that the KMT had was the island of Taiwan. So they all fled in their millions there. I remember, you know, I had colleagues whose grandparents had been KMT senior military officers who'd come from the mainland. And they remembered going to visit them. And they always had like really tatty, cheap furniture because they were exiles. And they were absolutely sure that they were going to be going back to the mainland to reconquer the whole of China, so they didn't need nice furniture. Yeah, so Waishengren and mainlanders always had this sense of exiled nostalgia. But Chen and his family, they were Bunshengren, so they were islanders. Chen grew up in the southern city of Tainan, and he had a very typical islander experience. His parents spoke Japanese. They had grown up under Japanese colonial rule because Taiwan was a colony of Japan from the end of the 19th century. So his mother was a pharmacist, his dad was a doctor, and they studied and did everything in Japanese. Well, whilst they spoke Japanese at home, but I guess after half a century of Japanese colonial rule, at the end of the Second World War, Taiwan passes formally into Chinese hands. Yeah, that's right. That's 1945. And of course, the China that Taiwan is given to is not communist China. It's the Republic of China. That was the name of the country after the fall of the Qing Dynasty in 1911. And at this point, it was led by the KMT, the Nationalist Party. And that KMT then were the losers just four years later in 1949 of the Chinese Civil War, as Chairman Mao and the Communist Red Army sweeps the KMT off the mainland, across the sea, into exile on the island of Taiwan. Yeah, and that year, 1949, is the year that Chen Yao-chang was born. So when Chen is born, he's born on an island called the Republic of China, whereas his parents, born on the same island, are born in a Japanese province called Taiwan. Yeah, that's right. So from the mainlander's perspective, it's like Taiwan is this base to take back the mainland. But from the islander's perspective, a lot of them they had been living as second-class citizens under Japanese rule. And a lot of people at that time, when they were going to pass to Chinese rule, they were hopeful, like, we're finally going to be united with other ethnic Chinese people, and maybe we can have more agency, we're not going to be second-class anymore. But that isn't what happened, because when the mainlanders came, they essentially established a military dictatorship, and the islanders became, once again, second-class. And that's something that Chen felt even as a child in elementary school. And he told me that he was being brainwashed. 
you oh, were. identity? Well, yeah. that's because I'm brainwashed, of course. Mm-hmm. Well, I know I'm Taiwanese, but uh, I still have to, that's a big China <laughs> fantasy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what does he mean by a big China fantasy? So basically, when Chen Yao-chang was growing up, he was going to school in this nationalist education system that the KMT brought with them. Local ones say you don't know how many how many rivers we have in Taiwan, but we are very familiar with uh, the rivers. And, in China. Yeah, yes. And the cities and the railroads. <laughs> so in school, everybody was taught, you are Chinese, we're all Chinese, we're all good Chinese people, and we're going to take back the mainland. They had to learn Mandarin, which was a new language for him, and they had to recite all these nationalistic slogans. And Chen tells me the big China fantasy, it's like he was given this dream in school of one day we will get the mainland and he would become very defensive about China. He memorized all these Chinese maps. And sometimes if his teachers used Republic of China maps that were incomplete, he would say, no, no, you need to include more territory in that because all this territory is supposed to belong to us. So Chen was a native islander. That was his family's home island, but he was being educated as if he was an exile from mainland China. Did he understand that as a young schoolboy? I asked him about it and he told me it was like he kind of had this dual identity because at home, in private, they were speaking Taiwanese and they knew that they had this other Taiwanese identity, but they didn't bring it up in public and they also didn't speak their own language in public because they would get in trouble for that. This is how he described it. Well, some kind of schizophrenia. Schizophrenia. <laughs> he basically says it's kind of like schizophrenia. You're thinking one way on the inside, but you don't dare to say it on the outside. And there was a real reason to keep that double life to yourself, right? This was a police state. It felt like it was a wartime camp. They were at war with the communists and political opponents ended up in jail or worse. Yeah, including a terrible massacre that happened right at the beginning of KMT rule. This year, I went to a music festival commemorating it. And on the way, I recorded you a voice note. So, hey, David, I am standing in the heart of Taipei right now in the 228 Memorial Park. And today is February 28th. That is a really significant date in Taiwan politics and in history because it commemorates a massacre that happened here in Taiwan in 1947. A few years after the KMT took over Taiwan, there was a local uprising where Taiwanese people were unhappy with Chinese rule. And basically, there was this conflict between the nationalist police and an old woman who was selling cigarettes without permission from the Monopoly Bureau. And they ended up beating this old woman. And that led to protests. And that led to kind of a mass uprising, which then was quelled by troops that came from the mainland. And in this massacre, official estimates say that 18,000 to 28,000 people were killed. So to understand Taiwanese history and politics, you really have to understand that The ROC takeover, the Republic of China takeover of Taiwan, was marked by huge, immense brutality. And now it's openly commemorated. Yeah, that's right. Although actually commemorating this massacre is still a bit controversial, and we will talk about that later. But for now... 
you can imagine, you know, after this massacre, after all these people were killed, people were afraid. And so Chen, as a young Taiwanese guy, he was living his double life and he was keeping his Taiwanese side deeply suppressed. That is until Taiwan slowly began to change. Tell me about that slow change. What is the journey of this island in Chen's lifetime from an island where he's born, there's just been this terrible massacre, to a place where now there's a public concert to commemorate that massacre? Well, I think the first reason for that change is that it was the result of decades of activism by really brave Taiwanese people who were often arrested or sent for re-education or prison and hard labor, and, and many were also killed in this period. And that's why a lot of people now refer to those years with this name, which is White Terror. And then geopolitics, right? Because the KMT's biggest backers in their exile on Taiwan was America. Mm. And then finally, 1972, in order to have a relationship with China, Richard Nixon goes to Beijing, meets Chairman Mao. We have been here a week. This was the week that changed the world. And basically abandons the KMT and no longer pretends that the Republic of China is the rightful ruler of the whole country. Yeah, and that was really a shattering blow, right? Because the KMT lost their superpower backer. And as a result, they were worried about regime stability. And one thing that the KMT had to do was to expand their base and allow more islanders, more of those Bunshengren, people who hadn't come from the mainland, into the government. Because all these positions of power were given to people who came from mainland China. I remember reading about these snowy-haired old guys who were sitting in this Congress saying that they were still the representative for mainland cities like Shanghai and Nanjing. Yeah, exactly. It's like this fiction of one day we're going to take back the mainland. It allowed these mainlanders to concentrate all the power in their own hands in Taiwan. But then 40 plus years pass and it doesn't happen. So around this same time, your doctor novelist Chen Yachang, he's a young man, I guess he's in his 20s. How does he see these changes in Taiwan around him? Yeah, he told me about that. He said he observed that kind of as these very, very gradual transitions were happening, the KMT loosening its absolute grip on power, he saw that Taiwanese activists were also pushing for change. And he saw even some Taiwanese newspapers, they were starting to report about protests for the first time. So sometimes Chen was speaking in English, but I also told him, like, if you want to express yourself more freely, you can use Chinese too. And at this point, he did use Chinese. Then he told me when he saw those newspapers, he started to cry because he thought, finally, Taiwanese people are, are brave enough to resist. That's quite a journey in just a few decades from being a kind of schoolboy learning the rivers of China as a kind of dutiful KMT student to weeping at news of people protesting against the KMT. Yeah, he told me that it's like he had that China dream on the outside, but he always did have this deeply suppressed Taiwanese self on the inside too. And I guess part of it is just when you grow up in a society like that with such tight control, you don't dare to think that things could ever really change. But they did. In Taiwan, they did. And especially after 1987, martial law was lifted. And then there was a president, Li Donghui. He was the first Taiwan-born president, and he really reformed the constitution. He allowed real elections to happen. And this whole time, of course, Taiwanese activists were also pushing for a change. 
And some of those opposition activists campaigning for independence, they became a political party, right? The Democratic Progressive Party. And that same DPP is now the ruling party of Taiwan, right? Yeah, that's right. They grew out of this movement that was fighting against authoritarianism, but that fight was also always very closely linked with fighting for a Taiwanese identity. And that transition to democracy happened without a war or a revolution. Yeah, it was bloodless and it was gradual. And I think that is something that is really remarkable about Taiwan, but it also makes Taiwanese society complicated. So in the late 80s, Chen, our doctor turned novelist, he is now coming up to 40 years old. He can see this democracy forming around him. How does he think about mainland China at this point? I asked him about that and he told me that because he had witnessed Taiwan's change, you know, this total turnaround, he was also hopeful about China. And of course, China was starting to change at that time too. Mao Zedong had died and Deng Xiaoping was moving China towards reform. So Chen says because the two sides of the strait have these blood ties, he wondered in the future if both sides democratize, could we come together? So this is 30 years ago or so, and he's still thinking that actually China and Taiwan, if they're both democracies, it might make sense for them to be one country, that there are those blood family links. Yeah, at that point he was thinking that, and I think many people in Taiwan were thinking that. But Alice, your guy Chen, his hopes are dashed because China doesn't democratize. That's right, and Taiwan does democratize, but with democracy comes a lot of messy politics and division, and that complicated history we just walked through, it still keeps triggering fresh arguments. And I have to say, from the outside, some of those arguments are pretty arcane. Yeah, I mean, even this month, we just had Taiwan National Day, right? But on National Day, there were two separate celebrations because the KMT and the DPP couldn't agree on what the name of the nation is. So President Tsai Ing-wen had a party for Taiwan National Day, and then her predecessor, former President Ma ying of the KMT, boycotted it, and he had his own celebration for the Republic of China. So you can hear Ma Yingzio here saying, Taiwan is our home, I have no issue with that, but the Republic of China is our country's real name. And he goes, Dui bu dui, like, am I right? And the crowd is like, yeah. And they're wearing all these t-shirts that say ROC forever. That disunity, that political squabbling is an opportunity for China where I am, right? If you're the Chinese communist propaganda machine, those are divisions that you can exploit. Yeah, exactly. Because if Taiwanese people can't even agree on who they are or on the story of their country, then how can they unite to defend it? And those divisions go right down the middle of families, right? That's right. In a moment, we're going to meet a mother and daughter who are divided by their political beliefs. And we'll also find out about how, as Taiwan democratized, Chen Yaochang resolved his split identities, that Taiwanese identity he kept hidden at home, and also that Chinese one that he learned at school. But before we get to that, we wanted to remind you that Economist Podcast Plus begins today. If you're already a long-time Economist subscriber, or one of the many thousands who've signed up to take advantage of the podcast deal in the last few weeks, thank you. And thanks too for all the lovely emails telling us why you've decided to join us for the next phase of our journey. We are delighted to have you along. 
We have just published an extra mini episode. It's a short welcome to the world of Economist Podcast Plus. And this preview episode will be locked. So if you listen on Apple or Spotify, just click on it and you will be directed to enter your Economist account details and log in. Once you've done that, you'll be all set. You only have to do this one time and all shows will be unlocked. And if you don't use Apple or Spotify, then go to the FAQ page in the show notes for details of how to access Economist Podcast Plus on your preferred podcast app. And if you're worried you might forget some of this, then look out for an email which covers everything I just mentioned. This week, all of our shows are still free, so you can listen to them without linking your account. But you will have to make sure you go through that linking process by the 28th of October, which is when all of our weekly shows and special series will be paywalled, starting with the first episode of our new show, The Weekend Intelligence. And don't panic if you've not signed up yet. There is still just time to take advantage of that half-price offer. $24.50 for the whole year, or just $2, pounds or euros a month. And for that, you'll be able to enjoy every show in the award-winning Economist Network. Economist Podcast Plus will be available on whatever app you're using right now, whether that's Apple, Spotify, The Economist app, or any other. And to sign up for that special offer right now, click on the link in the show notes. You can also find the link easily by googling Economist Podcasts. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. So, Alice... Tell us what's happening to Chen. It's the late 80s. He's moved by the first signs of Taiwan becoming a real democracy, wondering if China might become a democracy too one day so that Taiwan and China could unite. That's right. In Taiwan, basically, after democratization, there were a lot of reforms and they included, for example, in education, the textbooks were changed, where in the past, remember, Chen had to memorize all these names of Chinese rivers and so on. Now the textbooks they focused on Taiwan, the island, and they taught history through the Taiwan lens. And so Chen became really interested in this. You remember he was a doctor, he was a surgeon, but he started developing this interest in Taiwanese identity and history. And he wanted to know, who are we? If we're no longer memorizing all this Chinese stuff, then who else was on this island before? And where did Taiwanese people come from? So he started to do these studies on Taiwanese genetics. Here's Chen speaking to me in English again. So I realized that Taiwan from the beginning of the history is a mixture society. That's why I call the three tribes. Actually, it's three races. Wow, so you've got the Aborigines, the oldest inhabitants, then the people who came from different bits of mainland China. And then there was a brief period hundreds of years ago where it's a Dutch colony. 
And a major turning point for Taiwan was the year 2000, and that was the first time that Taiwan elected a non-KMT president. Chen is trying to figure out what makes up Taiwanese people, sort of genetically, and this is something that some have said it's kind of like a political point. It's like now that Taiwan is a democracy and we have the DPP ruling, they want to emphasize that Taiwanese people are not Chinese, and so they try to emphasize all these different non-Chinese. Sources of the Taiwanese population. I was actually there as a reporter for that election, and I remember how ordinary Taiwanese people—they were scared the day before the election about the idea of maybe if the KMT wasn't in charge anymore, would there be revolution or what would happen? I remember there was the same local woman working in my Taipei hotel. I talked to her the day before and the day after the election, and the morning after the DPP candidate Chen Shui-bian had just won, she said to me, "You know, life feels normal." <laughs> As if she'd been worried that like the sky was going to fall. Well, yeah, it's like whoa, we transitioned to a different party, and and we're still here. Like we're still okay. Still got on the bus. Still goes to work. Yeah, I mean it's incredible when you talk about 2000. It wasn't that long ago, right? Only 23 years, and it's remarkable how much Taiwan has changed in such a short time. In Taiwanese society, there is this term for. Younger people who were born after martial law, people who were born from the 1990s onwards, they call them 天然独 like naturally independent, or some people now say 天然泰 like naturally born Taiwanese. And they're very different from the older generations who lived through that martial law era and had that mindset of we live in this one-party system where all the power is in the hands of the KMT. So Chen Yaochang was investigating his genetic background because he was trying to work out what being Taiwanese meant, like how Chinese am I ethnically. But for younger people in Taiwan, they were building a new definition of what it means to be Taiwanese, and that was centered on citizenship and on the individual's relationship with the state. It wasn't about being ethnically Chinese or not. Sometimes those generation divides must get pretty painful. Yes, there are a lot of families going through this, and I met one of them. One of my friends' entire family supports the DPP. When I'm with them, and the conversation gets too heated, I just say, "Let's not talk about this. Let's sing." Did she just say, "Let's sing"? Yeah, she did. And who is she? So this is a mom that we met. Her name is Luo Fenge, Miss Luo, and she lives in Taichung, in the middle of Taiwan. We met her in her house in this old apartment building. She welcomed us in, and she had this whole table full of snacks, like a lot of crackers and candies and fruit. And she was kind of feeding us the whole time that we were talking. So Miss Luo, she is a Bencheng人, an Islander Taiwanese, but. She is an avid supporter of the KMT, and she says she grew up in a powerful family, and her dad was a village chief, and the KMT always treated them really well, and they also treated other people well too. So that's interesting. So she's a native islander, but she supports the KMT. Yeah, that's right. She is a very loyal supporter of the KMT. She kind of has two great passions. It's one is. Politics. She likes to go and campaign for KMT candidates, and another one is Buddhism. She loves to spend time at the temple, but her support for the KMT it also leads to a lot of arguments. To give you an example, I was at my friend's place, and he asked me outright, "Are you a supporter of the KMT?" I said yes, and then I could just see his face starting to twitch. He was visibly angry. He said, "Oh, you're an idiot." But I wouldn't get mad. I just told him, 
Take a deep breath. Relax. Deep breathing is very effective. He go on and on about how great the DPP is, and that the KMT is responsible for the 228 massacre, and a lot of people died. I said, "Tell me, what government doesn't have blood on their hands?" Wait, back up. So she just said that every government has blood on its hands. We did ask her to clarify about that, and she said, "Well, basically, every political party is corrupt. They all do bad things. It's just about to what degree do they do bad things, and also do they treat you well." All I'm saying is, the DPP is corrupt, and the KMT is also corrupt. But the DPP is just better at hiding it, and they're taking a bigger bite. So, do you think a lot of people in Taiwan are like that? If they grew up under the martial law era, are they that cynical about multi-party politics? To be honest, I think so, and especially people from this older generation. I should point out, though, that Miss Luo is living in a very different version of Taiwan. Constance, our Taiwan researcher, and I—we were sitting there with her, and she told us a lot of stories about mingling with gangsters in temples, and how she was always telling the gangsters to stay out of jail and be more devout. But also, it was so easy to get them to donate money, and. In Taiwan, there's this connection between local gangs and temples that is a long-standing part of local politics. There's a lot of suspicion that there's corruption because the money that goes to temples is not transparent, and you don't have to report where you're getting money, where is it going. And so, when I talked to Miss Luo, at one point she said to us, "You guys are naive. Like you guys are so innocent because." I didn't understand all the swearing and gang language she was using, but also because she was saying politics is really about patronage. It's really about connections and about what you can get. And so she's from the older generation. Do other generations of her family think the same way? Not necessarily. So we also went to meet Miss Luo's daughter. Her name is Jane. She's thirty years old. She used to work in journalism. Now she works in tech in Xinzhou, the semiconductor hub of Taiwan, and she. Is one of those young Taiwanese who grew up in a democratic Taiwan, and so she engages with politics in a very different way. When Jane was in her early twenties, she experienced these major student protests that were called the Sunflower Movement. First, Jane saw the protests reported on Taiwanese news. On March 18, 2014, demonstrators stormed the Taiwan's legislature and stayed there for 23 days, the first time it had ever been occupied by citizens. So Jane told me that she went to those protests and she felt actually really empowered by them. It was her first experience of political participation. Like she'd grown up in this family that was very pro KMT and also had this cynical view of politics. But for the first time during Sunflower, she was on the streets and she felt like, as an ordinary citizen, she could voice what she wanted and she could make a change. And citizens have that power in a democratic country. And the other thing she told me is that the Sunflower Movement really pushed her to reconsider her own identity. It wasn't until I joined the Sunflower Movement that I realized I am Taiwanese. I don't identify with mainland China or the Republic of China. Those last two concepts are one and the same in my eyes. I can't quite describe it accurately, but the Republic of China very much feels like. An extension or a temporary setup—it's such a vague concept and leaves a lot of room for interpretation. But to me, Taiwan is Taiwan. That identity is clear. Taiwan, it is Taiwan. I think this identity is very clear. 
And that sunflower protest movement was a political victory, right? Because I remember as a journalist on the outside, seeing that after eight years of the KMT being back in power in the early 2010s, suddenly their whole strategy of increasing trade with China as the best way to keep the peace was losing public support and becoming really controversial. Yeah, and Taiwanese people, I guess especially younger people, were becoming more distrustful of getting close to China. And tell me about Chen. So the time of the Sunflower protest movements, he is in his early 60s, and he was already writing his historical novels, right? Yeah, that's right. He was writing those novels I told you about. And around this time, his views of China were also changing. Because remember, he used to have this hope of, you know, maybe China will democratize, maybe we can be together. But then he saw how China was shifting under Xi Jinping. So Chen is saying that during the 2000s, when all these agreements were being signed, Taiwan and China, they actually were trading a lot. They were having a lot of exchanges. And a lot of Taiwanese businesses went to China and made a fortune and got rich. And he said, that's why people like me, we were starting to get hopeful about you know, the two sides relationship. But ultimately, he says, they realize that China doesn't have a, quote, democratic or rule of law DNA. And so they decided that it was hopeless. Is he using DNA literally there? No, 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 he's not. So Chen is not saying like, oh, genetically, Chinese people cannot be democratic. But he's using DNA here as a metaphor where he's trying to say in the past, he thought about we're genetically connected, we're ethnically Chinese, maybe we can be together. But now he's realizing that China does not have the values or the institutions of a democracy, and that's going to keep the two sides apart. But now I realize that we have different DNA in those 制度面或者是家族面, yeah, so basically Chen is saying that China and Taiwan are totally different in terms of their values and their institutions. And for him, now thinking about the future of Taiwan with China, the most important thing about the two sides is not whether they belong to the same race, but it's about how he as a Taiwanese person does not want to experience another authoritarian future ruled by mainlanders. And he's saying now that Taiwan needs to stand and unite around a different kind of identity, DNA, and that identity is based on values. I can see why that is exactly the kind of talk that really upsets Chinese communist leaders, because here in the mainland, all of the propaganda, you'll remember, Alice, about Taiwan talks about being of one blood, being of the same family, Taiwan compatriots. But of course, he's saying blood in terms of ancestry, sure, but the thing that matters is the different political system. And that's a difference that communist leaders consider completely unimportant, if not actively illegitimate. It's all about ethno-nationalist unity. Yeah. And, you know, Chen told me that he even has some of his Taiwanese business friends who, as they realize this vast gap between the two sides and they see China turning more authoritarian under Xi Jinping, even these business friends who made a lot of investments in China, they're thinking about leaving. And I asked him, how do they feel about that? And he said something quite poetic. <laughs> so he quoted a line from a poem and then he actually wrote it out for us. He said, And he said, it's kind of like the past is faded and empty. It's like it was all a dream. 
it reminds us that this is sad. This is, on a human level, this is about loss, right? This isn't just about an election where one party takes over from another. This is about giving something up, whether it's your dream of China becoming a democracy or if you're an islander whose grandparents came from the mainland, maybe, you know, you were raised with stories that for thousands of years, this is the Chinese culture that made us who we are. But if you decide that your future lies in this democracy called Taiwan, that's exciting. It's politics, but it's also it's about losing some part of your family story. Exactly. And it's difficult to let that go and also difficult to kind of face the reality and to face the future because it is very uncertain and scary. And and I mean, all this reminds me of something I heard at that music festival on February 28th. Remember on the day commemorating the massacre, I, I went and there was this festival with all these young people from different parts of Taiwanese civil society. Among them was one woman. She's a psychologist and she works on political trauma. And she told me Taiwan is going through this process. It's emerged from authoritarianism. It's a full democracy, but its identity is still catching up. If I look at Taiwanese society the way I look at a patient, I see the journey of someone who's constantly being monitored or shut down. So this person can't firmly say what they think or how they feel. Psychologically speaking, Taiwan is like an adult with the mind of a child. It needs time to mature. There needs to be struggle and trauma to go through, and it will be difficult at first. But if people do start debating things in their head, then they begin to separate from the identity they've been given. The more people are able to do this, the more Taiwan's democracy can mature. I'm a therapist in a university, and from what I've seen, the younger generation does this more than the old. Well, so she thinks that Taiwan needs more time for its identity to really become mature. Yeah, exactly. And that's something that, you know, I spent the whole night at that music festival talking about with these young people who were there at that festival also because they're concerned about Taiwan's democracy and its resilience and whether it can survive long enough to really build this identity. I was thinking all this over and I recorded you a voice note. The scary thing, they said, is that it takes time. It takes time to transition totally out of authoritarianism. Maybe your political institutions, maybe your political system has changed, but the way people think and a lot of the holdovers from autocracy, they're still there. And it just it takes time to transform an entire society, right? But at the same time, how much time does Taiwan have? So there's a sense of urgency there. And of course, when they say there's limited time, it's because of the China threat, right? There's a sense of urgency and there's a sense that everyone needs to do all that they can as quickly as they can to build that national consensus, national identity, and to agree on a set of values, you know, values rooted in human rights and freedom and inequality. So it's quite a night. That is both moving that you're having those conversations, but of course it's the Chinese Communist Party's worst nightmare. And that's why you see state-backed scholars and even the Chinese ambassador to Paris not that long ago talking about the need to re-educate the people of Taiwan once they've taken the island back. I mean, they understand that this is a battle for people's own sense of themselves, what's in their heads. So going back to our opening question, is Taiwan Chinese or not? I think our answer has to be 
it's up to the Taiwanese people to decide. And when you look at the public opinion polls, more and more people say that they are just Taiwanese and not Chinese, which means their identity is built around this place and this democratic political system rather than around their ethnic heritage. But the polls also show that most people don't want to declare independence because they know that that would invite a Chinese attack. And of course, Alice, when you ask that question, how much time does Taiwan have? That's another way of asking the most painful question of all, which is, might China one day invade? And so identity explains so much of how the Taiwanese people might respond to that, how they might be willing to prepare for that. But China is going to decide whether to invade or not. And that's going to be in the head of one man above all here in Beijing, where I am, Xi Jinping, and the costs that he is willing to pay if he decides one day to try and take Taiwan by force. Yeah, and of course, that's a military decision. So that's what Xi Jinping is going to be thinking about. But also, if he does want to take Taiwan by force, there will be economic costs. And some of those costs will touch on technologies that Taiwan makes and that are completely indispensable to modern life in Taiwan, in China, and actually wherever you are, our listeners, wherever you're listening to this podcast, you're also using a piece of technology that was made in Taiwan. That is so important. If it sounds odd to suddenly be talking about economics, that is one of the single biggest questions about a war over Taiwan, in addition to the human tragedy and the horror of it. Taiwan is just utterly, utterly indispensable to global supply chains. And that is what we'll be looking at next week on Drum Tower. We'll be telling the story of how Taiwan's biggest and most valuable company, TSMC, made itself the world's best chip maker and irreplaceable to both China and America. Those economic ties were supposed to help keep Taiwan safe, but now they're pulling apart. The importance of chips, I think, comes not from the dollar value or how difficult it is to make them, but from their importance to everyday life, like the sun, water or air. You might not see them, but chips are everywhere. They're in home appliances, in your fridge. There's even one embedded in your bib if you run the marathon. TSMC is the biggest and most cutting-edge player in the semiconductor world. If these things are destroyed, the impact could be bigger than running out of oil. And that is next time on Drum Tower. If you want to keep listening to Drum Tower, then from today, you will need to be an Economist Podcast Plus subscriber. If you sign up before October 31st, you can take advantage of a special half-price offer for our listeners, $24.50 for the whole year. That will give you access to all of our specialist shows and plenty more The Economist has coming up. Economist Podcast Plus will be available on whatever app you're using right now, whether that's Apple, Spotify, The Economist app, or any other. To sign up for that special offer right now, click on the link in the show notes. If you're too busy to do that, it's easy to find the link later by Googling Economist Podcasts. If you already subscribe to The Economist, thank you so much for your support, and you will have full access to all of our podcasts. And thank you so much to everyone who has been emailing us, especially Jasmine, a Taiwanese listener who is now in South Carolina. She wrote to us about what her identity means to her. So thank you, Jasmine. And if anyone else would like to send us a note, our email address is drum at economist.com. Our editor is Poppy Seabag Montefiore, Alicia Burrell, Alizé Jean-Baptiste, Jia Chen, and Constance Chang 
produced this episode. Sound design is by Tingli Lim and Nicola Rofast. Drum Tower's music was composed by Sansheng Xianyi and Jocelyn Tan. Our special thanks to Lily Hallett, Lo Shu Ma, and Ariel Shu. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.